Chapter Four, Part Two of Knots Untied by J. C. Ryle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Four, The Thirty Nine Articles, Part Two. Two. I must now take up a question which is of great and serious importance. To prevent mistakes, I shall state it as clearly and logically as I can. What is the precise rank, authority, and position of the Thirty Nine Articles? are they or are they not the chief foremost primary and principal test of true churchmanship my reasons for going into this point are as follows some clergymen and laymen in the present day are fond of saying that the prayer book and not the articles is the real measure and gauge of a churchman the prayer book the prayer book is the incessant cry of these people we want no other standard of doctrine but the prayer book is it a controverted point about the church what says the prayer book is it a doctrine that is disputed? What says the prayer book? Is it the effect of baptism, or the nature of the Lord's Supper, that is under discussion? What says the prayer book? To the articles these gentlemen seem to have a peculiar dislike, a hydrophobic aversion. They seldom refer to them, unless perhaps to sneer at them as the forty stripes save one. They never quote them, never bring them forward if they can possibly help it what intelligent observer of religious questions among churchmen does not know perfectly well the class of men whom i have in view they are to be found all over england we meet them in newspapers and books we hear them in pulpits and on platforms they are ever thrusting on the public their favourite diana of the ephesians their darling notion that the prayer-book and not the articles is the test of a churchman Footnote. in a volume recently published entitled studies in modern problems edited by Mr. Orby Shipley, a prominent piece is assigned to a paper bearing the ominous title, Abolition of the Articles. In the forty-eight pages of this paper much is said about the origin of the Articles, and the Continental Reformers are not spoken of in favorable terms. But I cannot discover in the paper the slightest proof that the Articles are not the true test of a churchman's soundness in the faith. Nor can I discern any reason for the writer's wish to have subscription in the Articles abolished, except his dislike to Protestant doctrine. End of footnote. Now, with all respect to these worthy people, I venture to say that their favorite notion is as real and idle as the Ephesian Diana was of old. I shall try to show the reader that in exalting the prayer book above the articles, they have taken up a position that cannot possibly be maintained. I shall try to show, by evidence that cannot be gainsaid, that the true state of the case is exactly the reverse of what they are so fond of proclaiming. I am not going to say anything about the prayer-book. It is a matchless book of devotion. But I am going to say, and to prove, that the articles and not the prayer-book are the first, foremost, and principal test of a true churchman. I shall dismiss briefly four points that I might dwell upon at length, if it were worth while. A. I pass over the obvious suspiciousness of any churchman ignoring the articles, giving them the cold shoulder, and talking only about the prayer book when he is speaking of the test of a churchman's religion. That many do so is quite needless to say. Yet the fifth canon of 1604 contains the following words. Whosoever shall hereafter affirm that any of the thirty-nine articles agreed upon by the archbishops and bishops of both provinces in the convocation holden at london in the year of our lord god fifteen sixty two for avoiding diversities of opinion and establishing of consent touching true religion are in any part superstitious or erroneous or such as he may not with a good conscience subscribe unto 
let him be excommunicated ipso facto and not restored but only by the archbishops after his repentance and public revocation of such his wicked errors plain language that certain churchmen who are fond of pelting evangelical churchmen with canons would do well to remember that canon b i pass over the implied insinuation that there is any contradiction between the articles and the prayer-book many talk and write as if there was it is a notion unworthy of any one of common sense the man who supposes that divines of such grace and learning as the elizabethan reformers would ever with the same hands draw up articles and a prayer-book containing two different doctrines must be in a strange state of mind reason itself points out that the prayer-book and the articles were meant to teach the same doctrines and that no interpretation which makes them jar and contradict one another can be correct lord chatham's famous dictum that the church of england has a popish liturgy an armenian clergy and a calvinistic set of articles was doubtless very smart but it was not true c i pass over the unreasonableness of setting up a book of devotion like the liturgy as a better test of churchmanship than a confession of faith like the articles prayers in the very nature of things are compositions which are not so precisely formed and worded as cold dry dogmatic statements of doctrine they are what the rhetorical speech of the advocate is compared to the cautiously balanced decision of the judge in the prayer book says dean good we have a collection of natural formularies of devotion written at a time when a large proportion of the people were inclined to romanism and at the same time compelled to attend the services of the national churches and consequently carefully drawn up so as to give as little offence as possible to romish prejudices is such a book calculated to serve the purposes of a standard of faith in the articles he adds on the other hand we have a precise confession of faith on all the great points of christian doctrine drawn up in dogmatic propositions as a test of doctrinal soundness for the clergy the liturgy is an excellent book but to say that in the nature of things it can serve the purpose of a standard of faith so well as the articles is absurd d i pass over the glaring foolishness of the common remark that those who are fond of maintaining the primary authority of the articles cast discredit upon the creeds the authors of this notable charge must surely have forgotten that one whole article the eighth is devoted to the three creeds so far from the admirers of the articles dishonouring and disparaging the creeds they are specially bound to honour reverence and defend them such vague argumentation goes far to show that many who speak slightly of the articles do not even know what the articles contain they speak evil things of that which they know not jude verse ten but i pass over all these points i desire to go straight to the mark and to give direct proofs of the position that i take up what i deliberately assert is that the thirty-nine articles were always intended to be and are at this day the first foremost chief and principal test of a churchman and that in this point of view there is nothing else that stands on a level with them in proof of this assertion i shall now bring forward a few witnesses one my first witness shall be a very simple one i mean the title of the articles which is prefixed to them in every complete and unmutilated prayer-book they are called articles agreed upon for the avoiding of diversities of opinion and for the establishing of consent touching true religion this title was first given to them by thomas cramner archbishop of canterbury 
in the reign of Edward the Sixth, fifteen fifty two, and afterwards given a second time by Matthew Parker, Archbishop of Canterbury, in Queen Elizabeth's reign in fifteen sixty two. I want no plainer language than the words of this title. The man who tries to get away from it and evade it is like a viper biting a file. Footnote. Archbishop Parker's correspondence, published in the Parker Society's series, supplies remarkable evidence of the importance attached to the thirty-nine articles by the Elizabethan reformers. This evidence will be found in a letter addressed to the Queen by the Archbishop and thirteen other bishops, in which they pray her to facilitate the passing of a bill through Parliament for the confirmation of the articles. The reason why the Queen interposed any delay does not appear to have been any dislike to the articles, but her characteristic Tudor jealousy of anything being done in church or state which did not originate from herself. In short, she affected to consider the initiation of a bill affecting religion by the commons was an infringement of her ecclesiastical supremacy. The reasons against delay which the archbishop and bishops pressed on the queen's attention deserve special notice. They say, First the matter itself tendeth to the glory of God, the advancement of true religion, and the salvation of Christian souls, and therefore ought principally, chiefly, and before all other things to be sought. Secondly, in the book which is now desired to be confirmed, are contained the principal articles of Christian religion most agreeable to God's word, publicly, since the beginning of your majesty's reign, professed, and by your highness's authority set forth and maintained. Thirdly, divers and sundry errors, and namely, such as have been in the realm wickedly and obstinately by the adversaries of the gospel defended, are by the same articles condemned. Fourthly, the approbation of these articles by your majesty shall be a very good mean to establish and confirm all your majesty's subjects in one consent and unity of true doctrine, to the great quiet and safety of your majesty and this free realm, whereas now, for want of plain certainty of articles of doctrine by law to be declared, great distraction and dissension of minds is at this present among your subjects. Parker Correspondence, Parker Society, page 293. Notwithstanding this letter, the prayer of the bishops appears not to have been granted until the year 1571. It is only one among many illustrations of the immense difficulties which the Elizabethan reformers had to contend with, in consequence of the arbitrary and self-willed character of their sovereign. I venture the opinion that few English monarchs have been so much overpraised and misunderstood as Elizabeth. I suspect the English Reformation would have been a far more perfect and complete work if the Queen had allowed the reformers to do all that they wanted to do. End of footnote. 2. My second witness shall be the statute law of the realm. I refer to two acts of Parliament. One is called the 13th of Elizabeth, Cap 12, and entitled, an act for ministers of the church to be of sound religion. The other act is called the 28th and 29th Victoria, Cap 122, and is entitled, An Act to Amend the Law as to the Declarations and Subscriptions to be Made and Oaths to be Taken by the Clergy, and was passed in the year 1865. The Act of Elizabeth in the second section declares that if any person ecclesiastical, or which shall have any ecclesiastical living, shall advisedly maintain or affirm any doctrine directly contrary or repugnant to any of the said thirty-nine articles, and being convicted before the bishop of the diocese, or the ordinary, or before the queen's commissioner in causes ecclesiastical, 
shall persist therein or not revoke his error or after such revocation affirm such untrue doctrine such maintaining or affirming or persisting shall be just cause to deprive such person of his ecclesiastical functions and it shall be lawful for the bishop of the diocese or ordinary or such commissioner to deprive such person comment on the evidence of this witness is needless there is no way of honestly evading the edge and point of this yet unrepealed act of parliament in a decision of all the judges in the twenty-third year of elizabeth it was declared that the act of thirteenth elizabeth was made for avoiding a diversity of opinion and that the prevention of such diversity was the scope of the statute coke's institution eighteen sixty five the provisions of this act of elizabeth are in full force at this very day and form the basis of any proceedings against a clergyman in matters of religion the act of the twenty eighth and twenty ninth of victoria is even more remarkable than the thirteenth of elizabeth the seventh section requires every person instituted to any living on the first lord's day on which he officiates in his church publicly and openly in the presence of his congregation to read the whole thirty-nine articles of religion and immediately after reading to make the declaration of assent to them up to the year eighteen sixty five we must remember a clergyman was required to read over the whole morning and evening service as well as the articles and then declare his assent and consent to the use of the book of common prayer this was dispensed with by the act of victoria but the requirement to read the thirty-nine articles was carefully retained the result is that every beneficent clergyman in the church of england has not only declared his assent to the thirty-nine articles but has done it in the most public way after reading them over before his congregation three my third witness shall be the royal declaration prefixed to the articles in sixteen twenty eight by king charles i it is a document which will be found at length in every complete and unmutilated prayer-book it contains the following passage we hold it most agreeable to this our kingly office and our own religious zeal to conserve and maintain the church committed to our charge in the unity of true religion and in the bond of peace and not to suffer unnecessary disputations alterations or questions to be raised which may nourish faction both in the church and the commonwealth we have therefore upon mature deliberation and with the advice of so many of our bishops as might conveniently be called together thought it fit to make this declaration following that the articles of the church of england which have been allowed and authorized heretofore and which our clergy generally have subscribed unto do contain the true doctrine of the church of england agreeable to god's word which we do therefore ratify and confirm requiring all our loving subjects to continue in the uniform profession thereof and prohibiting the least difference from the said articles admirable words these well would it have been if the unhappy monarch who put forth this declaration had afterwards adhered more decidedly to the doctrine of the articles had not ruined himself and the church by patronizing and supporting such men as archbishop laud four my fourth witness shall be a remarkable letter or circular issued by the crown in seventeen twenty one entitled directions to our archbishops and bishops for the preservation of unity in the church and the purity of the christian faith particularly in the doctrine of the holy trinity the charge given to the bishops in these directions is as follows you shall without delay signify to the clergy of your several dioceses this our royal command which we require you to see duly published and decreed viz 
that no preacher whatsoever in his sermons or lectures do presume to deliver any other doctrines concerning the great and fundamental truths of our most holy religion and particularly concerning the blessed trinity than what are contained in the holy scriptures and are agreeable to the three creeds and the thirty-nine articles of religion the circular proceeds to direct the bishops to put in force the famous statute of elizabeth already quoted but not one word do we find about the prayer-book from beginning to end of course these directions have no binding force now but as evidence of what men thought the test of church religion in seventeen twenty one they are remarkable five my fifth witness shall be thomas rogers chaplain to archbishop bancroft who published in sixteen o seven the first exposition of the articles which ever appeared this book we must remember was written within forty years of the time when the articles were finally ratified it was a work of great authority at the time and was dedicated to the archbishop in the preface to this work roger says the purpose of our church is best known by the doctrine which she does profess the doctrine by the thirty-nine articles established by act of parliament the articles by the words whereby they are expressed and other doctrine than in the said articles is contained our church neither hath nor holdeth and other sense they cannot yield than their words do import strong language that from an archbishop's chaplain i heartily wish we had a few more chaplains like him six my sixth and last evidence for brevity's sake i will give you all at once in the words of five well-known bishops of the church who have long passed away they were men very unlike one another and belonged to very different schools of thought but their testimonies to the value and rightful position of the articles are so curiously harmonious that it is interesting to have them brought together a let us hear then what great and good bishop hall says in his work on the old religion the church of england in whose motherhood we have all come to pride ourselves hath in much wisdom and piety delivered her judgment concerning all necessary points of religion in so complete a body of divinity as all hearts may rest in these we read these we write under as professing not their truth only but their sufficiency also the voice of god our father in his scriptures and out of them the voice of the church our mother in her articles is that which must both guide and settle our resolutions whatsoever is beside these is either private or unnecessary or uncertain hall's works oxford edition volume nine page three o eight b let us next hear what bishop stillingfleet says in his unreasonableness of separation this we all say that the doctrine of the church of england is contained in the thirty-nine articles and whatever the opinions of private persons may be this is the standard by which the sense of our church is to be taken london fourth edition page ninety five sixteen thirty one c let us hear next what bishop burnett says the thirty-nine articles are the sum of our doctrines and the confession of our faith burnett on articles preface page one oxford edition eighteen thirty one d let us hear next what bishop beveridge says in the preface to his great work on the articles the bishops and clergy of both provinces of this nation in a council held at london fifteen sixty two agreed upon certain articles of religion to the number of thirty-nine which to this day remain the constant and settled doctrine of our church which by an act of parliament of the thirteenth of queen elizabeth fifteen seventy one all that are entrusted with any ecclesiastical preferments are bound to subscribe to 
Beveridge on Articles, Volume 1, page 9, Oxford Edition, 1840. E. Let us hear, lastly, what Bishop Tomline says. The thirty-nine articles are the criterion of the faith of the members of the Church of England. Elements of Theology, Volume 2, page 34, 1799. Such are the testimonies which I offer to the attention of my readers, in proof of my assertion that the articles, much more than the prayer book, are the true test of churchmanship. The title prefixed to the articles by Cramner and Parker, the famous statutes of the 13th Elizabeth and 28th and 29th Victoria, the Royal Declaration of Charles I in 1628, the Royal Circular to the Bishops in 1721, the Express Opinion of Rogers, Archbishop Bancroft's private chaplain, the deliberately expressed judgment of five such men as Hall, Stillingfleet, Burnett, Beveridge, and Tomline, all these witnesses taken together supply a mass of evidence which to my eyes seem perfectly unanswerable. In the face of such evidence I dare not, as an honest man, refuse the conclusion that the truest churchman is the man who most truly agrees with the thirty-nine articles. It would be easy to multiply witnesses, and to overload the subject with evidence, but in these matters enough is as good as a feast. Enough, probably, has been said to satisfy any candid and impartial mind that the ground I have taken up about the articles has not been taken up in vain. He that desires to go more deeply into the subject would do well to consult Dean Good's writings about it, in a controversy which he held with the late Bishop of Exeter. In that remarkable controversy, I am bold to say, the Dean proved himself more than a match for the Bishop. Good's Defense of the Thirty-Nine Articles and Vindication of Defense, Hatchard, 1848. One remark which I must make, in self-defense, before leaving this branch of my subject. I particularly request that no reader will misunderstand the grounds I have been taking up. Let no one suppose that I think lightly of the prayer-book, because I do not regard it as the Church of England's standard and test of truth. Nothing could be more erroneous than such an idea. In loyal love to the prayer-book, and deep admiration of its contents, I give place to no man. Taken all in all, as an uninspired work, it is an incomparable book of devotion for the use of a Christian congregation. This is a position I would defend anywhere and everywhere. But the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer was never intended to be the Church's standard of doctrine in the same way that the Articles were. This was not meant to be its office. This was not the purpose for which it was compiled. It is a manual of public devotion. It is not a confession of faith. Let us love it, honor it, prize it, reverence it, admire it, use it. But let us not exalt it to the place which the thirty-nine articles alone can fill, and which common sense, statute law, and the express opinion of eminent divines unanimously agree in assigning to them. The articles, far more than the prayer-book, are the Church's standard of sound doctrine, and the real test of true churchmanship. Footnote. If any reader supposes that there is anything peculiar or extravagant in the position I take up about the authority of the Articles, as compared to the prayer book, I ask him to remember that Lord Hatherley, in his recent judgment in the famous Voicy case, takes up precisely the same ground. These are his words, as reported in The Guardian. We have not, in this our decision, referred to any of the formularies of the Church other than the Articles of Religion. We have been mindful of the authorities which have held that pious expressions of devotion are not to be taken as binding declarations of doctrine. In commenting on this judgment, the Solicitor's Journal, which certainly is not the organ of any theological party, 
uses the following remarkable language the judicial committee have adhered to the principles of previous decisions in their recent judgment the articles of religion and these alone are to be considered as the code of doctrine of the church of england End of footnote. End of chapter 4, part 2.